Hi there, today's February 2nd, 2014, and this is Epicenter Bitcoin, Episode 5. Dogecoin sleds to the Olympics. On today's show, we're talking about the arrest of Charlie Schrem, BitInstant CEO and ex-Vice Chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation. We're also talking about the guy who's taking on the US government to get his Silk Road coins back. We're talking about New York hearings on Bitcoin regulation and the latest Bitcoin regulation news from France. We're talking about PTC China that is once again accepting bank deposits. We're talking about Dogecoin's Olympic quest and giving you a brief update on Ethereum. If you like the work we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com tips for our tipping address. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Epicenter Bitcoin, your podcast about the latest news and developments in the Bitcoin world. Uh, I'm Brian Fabian Crane and I'm with Sebastian Couture and we're very excited to be back again. How have you been, Sebastian? Very well, and yourself? Yeah, good too. I'm excited about today and also excited about the conference coming up soon. Yeah, I got my tickets. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> How's your week been? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I've been been quite busy, and uh, we've had a, a f- I think fifth or sixth meetup too at the Bitcoin Startup Spilling Group. So that's 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 been going very well, and we're also planning to have a a good meetup just before the conference here. So I think there'll be lots of people, you know, that come for the conference that here the night before. So it's going to be and a that, huge meetup. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean, I we already have like people. Yeah, we already have like 50, 60 people now. So I think we'll be, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a hundred people at the meetup. Yeah, and you're going to get like Bobby Lee and all those guys coming to your meetup. <laughs> wouldn't that be sweet? <laughs> yeah, I think there's a speaker, speaker dinner that night. So I don't know how oh, many okay. of those people are coming. But yeah, no, I think it would be cool. Jörg Plotz is giving a talk. So he's the guy who started Room 77. Oh, cool. So um, yeah, so it would be good. Uh, should we get started? Yeah. Some big, we've got some big stories this week. Uh, we're going yeah, abs- to be covering some very big topics, <laughs> as, as everybody knows. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So our, our first story is... And I'm sure anyone who follows Bitcoin has been hearing about the stories, uh, the arrest of Charlie Schramm. So uh, Charlie Schramm is the, I guess, CEO of BitInstant, although BitInstant has been not operational for about half a year now. And he's also the vice chairman of the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Foundation. So this is a pretty big story. And was, course, was the vice chairman. Yeah, was. He's resigned now. And so he's been arrested at the very end of last weekend's Bitcoin conference in Miami. So I think he was supposed to give another talk and uh, they had to find a replacement for him. And another guy named Robert M. Fayella was also arrested. So he's a 52-year-old in uh, South Florida. And this is all related to Silk Road. So uh, let's briefly talk about what happened here. So Silk Road, of course, was a marketplace, a, a kind of eBay type thing that was running on Tor. So the server was hidden and you could only access it if you were using it through Tor. And you could buy pretty much anything 
you want it there. Well, everybody focus was definitely on drugs. So a lot, a lot of drug trading was going on there. And it ran from 2011, February 2011 until October 2013. And then it was a very a famous shutdown by the FBI. They arrested the guy. And uh, also important in this context is that they were actually mirroring the servers. So they knew where the service was. They knew about it uh, for a few months before. So they had, I think they have trans logs of the chats and things like that. Um, so Fayella, what he was doing was he essentially helped Silk Road users get Bitcoins because you could only pay with Bitcoin on Silk Road. And he advertised on the Silk Road forum that, you know, you could buy Bitcoin through him. So the way he did that was if someone said, okay, I want to buy, you know, a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin, he would go to BitInstant and uh, he would issue a purchase order. And then BitInstant would basically give him um, the details on how to make the payment. So it would say like, go to this bank, you know, uh, pay to this account number, uh, this amount, and, you know, maybe some reference code or something. Then Fayella would take this, send it to his customer. That customer would go um, to the bank, make that payment. And then uh, BitInstant would deposit that payment in a Bitcoin exchange for Fayella. And then Fayella would basically buy the Bitcoins and send it to, um, to the person's, I guess, address, which usually I think was a Silk Road uh, wallet. So, and, and of course, Fayella took a fee there. So he did this from uh, December 2011 until October 2012. Then BitInstant shut down uh, the cash deposit, uh, cash deposits. So he stopped his service completely. And then in 2013, April, 2013, he restarted. Uh, but because he couldn't do it with cash deposits anymore, he had, he was accepting direct wire transfers to his own bank account. Uh, of course that was very risky because now people, you know, he offered this to people and they saw, you know, Rob RM Fayella. And this was also how he was caught in the end is that the FBI, um, made, uh, you know, basically wanted to buy Bitcoins from him and he gave them his information, including bank details. And, uh, I, I think one security thing, a uh, security precaution he was taking is that he required people, he only dealt with people who had a record of transactions on Silk Road, but of course the FBI had been using Silk Road for years. So they had uh, Silk Road accounts with a history of transactions. So they were able to, you know, deal with this security precaution and they caught him that way. Well, what's also important is they actually knew about him for, for a long time. So I think they, but yeah, so let's get to the charges. So of course what he was doing was illegal because he was essentially operating, um, a money transmitter business and he wasn't licensed in any way. This Fayella guy. Yeah, this Fayella guy. And 
so the charges against him are on the one hand operating an unlicensed money transmitter or money services business and then the other charge is participating in a, a money laundering conspiracy now i, I quite honestly I, i don't really see how this is money laundering because money laundering you know if you look at the dictionary definition it's money laundering is basically taking money that was gained in a criminal activity and then trying to transform it into money that looks clean uh, so this is not what happened here right here is generally silk road users that had just took their money from whatever source it was and turn it into bitcoins but anyway that's one of the charges um shrem has so let's briefly talk about shrem and like how he comes into play here so he was the ceo of bidinstant during the time that fayela used bidinstant to provide a service he was also the chief compliance officer so he was basically responsible for making sure that bidinstant was following uh, the laws and one of the rules that uh, bidinstant had to comply with was that above $3000 they would have to do KYC so they would have to identify their customers know who they are know their addresses etc so in order not think, to do that sorry i think it's just important to point out for non us listeners who may not be familiar with this KYC means know your customer yeah so that's right yeah in terms of in terms of compliance you have to um, get the minimum amount of information from your customer so name Uh, perhaps some identity some identification like photocopy of their driver's license and such yeah utilities bill right but um exactly so above 3000 in the us they would have to do that so what bidinstant did because they didn't want to identify their customers is that they said uh, the limit is $1000 per day so they thought yeah no that's uh, $2000 lower than the the legal limit so they should be fine uh, that was their idea now of course Fayella was doing much larger amounts so he was doing up to twenty thousand dollars a day sometimes and um, the charges are that Shrem first of all he knew what Fayella was doing so he knew that he was doing uh, transaction amounts that were much larger than their limit the charges are also that he knew that Fayella was providing self growth users with bitcoins so that he was and because Silk Road users was were using them for illegal activities, which was buying drugs. That he basically uh, was complicit in facilitating these illegal activities. Um, the charges are also that Shrem helped Fayella providing that service, so he gave him volume discounts for doing such large transaction amounts. He also told Fayella. For example, to use different bank branches when the deposits were made, so there wouldn't be any suspicion. And for example, the cash processor, so the company that accepted the payment before sending it to BitInstant, uh, they thought that suspicious things were going on. They had told Shrem, like you know, what's up with that? Uh, can you look into this? And then Shrem. First of all, he uh, told them that he was looking into it, even though he wasn't. And he told Fayella how he should change the way he 
does the transaction so they wouldn't arise uh, suspicion. Uh, he also lied to the co-founder in that way that the co-founder was, you know, let's ban this guy. And uh, Shrem, so Shrem, you know, they, they did some thing where they said, like, okay, we ban him, but then they didn't really. And he, he kept doing uh, transactions. Uh, he also ordered some marijuana brownies, apparently, <laughs> on the, so quote. Yeah, so now the charges against him are that he was also complicit in operating a unlicensed money transmitter business, that he was participating in this money laundering conspiracy. And the third one is that he willfully didn't report a suspicious activity. So he has an obligation to report suspicious activities uh, with the government so they can look into that. And uh, he didn't do that, even though, of course, what Fayel was doing should have been a suspicious activity. So the, um, the charges are quite broad. Yeah, the charges are broad and also the potential penalty is massive. I think in Schrem's case, it could be up to 30 years and Fayela's case up to 25 years in jail. So, so yes. When, when, when I hear this and when I hear about these people, uh, particularly Charlie Schrem, who, who's the CEO of a company, right? Vice chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation. This was incredibly careless on his part. <laughs> I'm... I mean, you can say what you want about this Fayella uh, fellow. I, I don't know very much about him. He's just a regular guy, I guess. Um, yeah, absolutely. But but Charlie Schrem, obviously, people are going to have an eye on him. I mean, he, he's a CEO of a company and the vice chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation. So one, it's very careless. Two, as the vice president of the Bitcoin Foundation, a foundation that tries to promote Bitcoin as a viable alternative to currency, and promote its good uses and try to uh, condemn things like Silk Road. From an ethical perspective, this is just, just completely... No, yeah, I completely agree. This was, you know, you can argue about this, like how terrible was this? You can argue about Silk Road, how bad is Silk Road, etc., or not, you know. I mean, you can definitely have different opinions on that. And uh, I, for my part, I certainly think that the potential penalty they're facing is just excessive. Because even if what they did was wrong, uh, 30 years just seems crazy for, for this, you know. Um, you know, especially living in Europe where, you know, you, get, you have 20 years in jail for murder and things like that. And right. then in the US, they just go kind of crazy with these charges. Uh, but that being said, what he did was just extremely foolish and... Especially if you think about it, right? So BitInstant was operating very early on. So in a time where there was very little clarity of what do you need to do as a Bitcoin business, as a Bitcoin exchange in order to be compliant with the law. So, of course, he should have expected that, you know, people will look very closely at what they're doing and they have to, you know, if they come up with their own rules, okay, here's what we're going to do in order to be compliant with the law that doesn't even exist yet, uh, then at the very least, they would have to stick very closely to their own internal rules. And they didn't do that at all. And there was, of course, emails, uh, pass and things that really proved 
he, he didn't do that. So it was extremely foolish what he did. Yeah. And, and d- dealing with Silk Road and accepting, accepting, um, I mean, it, it just goes to show that at the, at the core, this guy was dishonest. I mean, he knew what he was doing. He knew that he was dealing with Silk Road. He knew that he was facilitating the sale of drugs. You can say what you want about, you know, him knowing about it or not knowing about it. He knew about it. He, he knew about it and he, and he facilitated it and, that, that was foolish. So I think at, at the core, uh, I don't think this guy is very honest and you know, whatever, whatever happens to him. And, uh, you know, if he, if he is charged, uh, um, if these charges go through, well, he'll deserve whatever prison sentence or. Oh, I don't know <laughs> yeah. about that. I mean, if he, if he gets 30 years, I don't think he deserves. No, that. I don't think it's, he deserves 30 um, years, but, uh, I think he deserves to be put on trial. And if he's found guilty, well, yeah, I mean, he, I think we can clearly say he was just stupid, irresponsible, and yeah, also he shouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah. For yeah, for, and it, yeah, so it's uh, it's of course bad for Bitcoin. It's very bad news. It has very negative publicity, and uh, yeah, it's you would certainly expect more for someone who is as prominent in the Bitcoin community and, of course, also is in his official role as vice chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation. I mean, he, he resigned from that now, but this is cast a very bad light on the foundation. And, and the Bitcoin Foundation doesn't have the best reputation, I think, in the Bitcoin community. There's a lot of people who think, like, what's the value that Bitcoin Foundation provides? And they're not helping with... You know, this doesn't help them. So let's just talk about you. You touched on public perception. So I, I have some excuse on this because, on the one hand, this just helps to, well, to show that you know, in in, in any sort of activity, you're going to have people that are going to be dishonest, and you know, there are, there are certainly many people in the financial industry that you could, um, you could label as being criminal or what have you. So that, but. You know, because this is Bitcoin and because it's been linked to Silk Road and it's been linked to illegal activity online, it's particularly scrutinized. And in that sense, this doesn't help. Um, however, on the other hand, the fact that these people are being la- you know pointed out and labeled as dishonest and seen by others in the Bitcoin community as such and condemned further, well, it goes to show that you know, the, the Bitcoin community as a whole is honest and you know, doesn't want this sort of activity happening um, with Bitcoin. Yeah, I don't know. But I then mean, again, on, but then again, the, you know, the, the media doesn't help at all. Like there's, there's these articles uh, that I saw where they talk about Shrem and Faella as being Bitcoin bosses. So this doesn't really help you know, the general public perception and further reinforces uh, people's perception that Bitcoin is run by a few people, which is not the case. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, his official role as vice chairman of the Bitcoin Foundation, I mean, it's such a high, you know, role with this title as such a status. Yeah, people people may confuse him as, you know, he's the vice chairman of Bitcoin Foundation. What does that mean? You know, people might confuse that as being sort of a... um, a decisive role in how Bitcoin is run or who owns Bitcoin or for people who don't know anything about it, this is very confusing. But yeah, at the same time, I think one thing that we can point out that's kind of positive is if you read any of the official documentation, the charges 
from the government and the attorney, state attorney, etc. They really emphasize that this is not about Bitcoin. Nothing is wrong with Bitcoin, etc. It's just about this particular thing. So they, I mean, they explicitly say that numerous times. So I, th- I think that's a positive thing. So they they really clearly do distinguish between this or this particular way of using Bitcoin and Bitcoin itself. Absolutely, yeah. But the media, <laughs> I mean, p- people aren't reading those those charges. People are reading what the media says. Uh, it's it's all in how the media will will frame this, and if, you know, we have to remember that these charges have been laid. There's you know, there hasn't been uh, he was released on bail, I think, but there there's no trial yet. So this will, of course, we'll, we'll keep hearing about this as as the story um, progresses, and this this perception um, issue will revolve around how the media will 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 portray it. Yeah, I, I was I was really wondering about this as well because if you look at the service Bidinson provided, the question is, of course, you know, could they do the same? You know, could they in the same way go after other Bitcoin exchanges, Bitcoin businesses, you know, that were dealing early on with Bitcoin before there was proper um, rules and before. I mean, right now, any Bitcoin exchange in the U.S. or any big business that does this kind of thing, they are getting money transmitter licenses in all the states, etc. So they spend a lot of money on lawyer, but they didn't used to do that. So BitInstant, when they started, they didn't do that. And I think most businesses at the time didn't do that. So the question, of course, is also, you know, are they going to go back and go to all these businesses and say, well, what you did back then? You know, that was illegal. Yeah, are they going to be grandfathered uh, in? Yeah, saying. so I, from my impression, if you read the charges, I don't think they have that intention. So, you know, for example, the co-founder, uh, I don't, he's not mentioned by name in the charges. I guess we could find out who that refers to. Um, but it doesn't seem, sound like they're going to have any charges against him. So uh, it's at least it seems hopeful that they won't do that and they won't just do this kind of blanket attack on old Bitcoin businesses that were early on and that perhaps didn't have the most solid um, guidelines and uh, compliance. Yeah, and, and perhaps uh, even exchanged some fiat money for Bitcoin that were then used to buy drugs on Silk Road, you know. There, there's potentially other exchanges that have been tied into this unknowingly. Yeah, and what's also important, right, is that they have a tremendous amount of information on Silk Road, I think, and mm-hmm. a tremendous, uh, I mean, I think they have the chats between, private chats between users from the last few months before Silk Road was shut down. So it's it would be interesting to see what else is coming there because I don't think this was the last thing. So do we have any idea when when the trial is happening? Because he was released no, on bail for... Yeah, he's, yeah, he's released on bail. I think he's under house arrest now. So right, he's in, staying with uh, his parents. In New York, mm. yeah. Uh, I don't know when the trial's starting, but yeah. So he's been pretty quiet. I mean, <coughs> we haven't heard anything from him either. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything. He hasn't posted on Twitter for, for some time, and I don't think he's reacted uh, officially or even unofficially online. I, I wonder if he's 
prohibited to do so or if, or if he's just remaining quiet. Yeah, perhaps. Or his lawyer tells him yeah. not to say anything. <laughs> um, we, ha- we have another story, actually, that kind of ties into this bringing up or bringing back the Silk Road story. Uh, so there's a guy, we, we talked about this on episode three, that the U.S. is about to sell 29,000 Bitcoins that people held in their Silk Road wallets. So this was, again, there, there were basically two things there, right? One was the Silk Road wallet, or which was really uh, Ross Ulbricht's wallet. So the guy who operated Silk Road and all his profits. And the other thing was all the Bitcoins that people held in their Silk Road accounts. Yeah, and we had speculated in one of the last episodes about how they were going to go about this. and Yeah, exactly, and how they were going to auction these off. Right. And now there's some guy, of course, if you think about it, uh, not everything on Silk Road was illegal. You could buy legal things there. You know, there were people selling some kind of books and, um, and other things that were actually not illegal. And... So if you just have an account on Silk Road and some money in there, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, you were doing anything illegal. And it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the U.S. government has the right to seize and auction off your funds. But nobody stepped up and said, no, wait, these are my funds and I want them back. Because, of course, people are scared. They don't want to have their name in public. They want to... They don't want to reveal themselves to the U.S. government, especially in, you know, that they were being an act, that they were an active software user. But now some guy in England has stepped up and he wants his Bitcoins back. I don't blame him. So this guy, his name is, yeah, no. (laughs) So he has a hundred Bitcoins on there, supposedly. So it's a substantial amount. Right. And his name is Peter Ward. He's a 52-year-old guy from Devon, so it's southwest England. And he was selling things like bongs, rolling paper, uh, seeds. Um, so kind of like drug um, paraphernalia, but yeah, but not, not actual drugs. So everything he did was legal. He has a, another store, a physical store. He sells the same things. So he was sell, selling those things on Silk Road as well. Uh, supposedly he also has like comprehensive records, you know, his books are in order, he even paid taxes on his Silk Road sales, etc. So now he's going there and he's like, I want my Bitcoins back. Well, he's also kind of a funny guy. He, uh, he was arrested, I think in October uh, 2nd and uh, the UK police walked in on him because I think they must've had the information from the FBI that he was a Silk Road a vendor and they see some of his merchandise and including uh, some personal drugs. So he did have some drugs, but on his own, he didn't sell them. And he, I think it was on his birthday. And he said that he was apparently at the post office when uh, his apartment was raided and he had some Coke on the mirror ready for his birthday line. But then when he came back, he was arrested instead, <laughs> but he was released without charge. Yeah. So uh, there's nothing against him, really. I, I don't know why he wasn't arrested for his personal drugs. But um, yeah, so now he's trying to get this money back. Well, and uh, uh, I, I wish him good luck, but I don't know, I don't know how that's going to happen. I mean, first of all, he's in the UK. 
he's not in he's not physically in the u.s so that, yeah, yeah but he's hired a u.s lawyer oh has he so. okay i think so yeah well i i wish him good luck but i i don't see that happening <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps, I mean, perhaps if others look, start coming forward, uh, other you know, legitimate businesses come forward and say, you know, I, I want my bitcoins back. This, this is interesting because I mean, it's 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 like if um, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think about it. If you were on eBay selling stuff on eBay, and uh, some other people on eBay were, well, I guess not eBay because eBay doesn't hold your money. But say if people start doing illegal, illegal activity on PayPal and all of PayPal gets seized <laughs> would everybody else's money be put in the same boat but no I mean I think he actually absolutely should have uh, be entitled to get his money back oh yeah absolutely I mean I think even even if you even if you bought drugs on Silk Road and you held some funds in there you should be able to get your money back I mean, it doesn't make any sense that uh, because of that, you're not entitled to get your money back or it's not your money. Of course, if you, let's say you were buying drugs on Silk Road and you bought this before and you had more funds in Silk Road, even though you may be entitled to get your money back, you might also uh, be, you, you would still have committed a crime and you basically be revealing that you were doing illegal things. So you might not want to do that. Yeah, but, but this is where I think the said, blood, I, I think this is where the lines yeah. a little blurry because you say you should be able to get your money back, but in the eyes of the U.S. government, this is not actually money. It's it's a commodity, or it, it it hasn't really been defined as money. So in the eyes of the U.S. government, this is just stuff that they seized. I think this I is don't where, know. Uh, I I don't know if that makes it. I don't think that makes a difference. But yeah, it's uh, interesting. So he also has a he has a legal fund. To, for his defense, there's 75 bitcoins in it now. I thought at first this was donations. I was like, wow. So there's one uh, one transaction into it for 50, one for 25, and then there's lots of little ones. I think from people on Reddit or you know who want to support his legal kind of uh, defense or his legal claim. But uh, supposedly, I read that he put his own life savings into that as well. So I presume that's at least one of those large transactions. So I don't, I don't know how much in donations he's actually gotten, but he does have 75 Bitcoin. So, you know, roughly $60,000 to fund his legal uh, claim. Well, I, I hope he gets it back. <laughs> but um... yeah, I mean, me too. I mean, I, one thing he also mentioned and that his kind of, that is his hope is that even if he doesn't get it back, he hopes that it will delay uh, this the sale and it might kind of upset and annoy the FBI. So I think that's his uh, second uh, hope that he can achieve with this. So this um, let's let's talk about the New York hearing. So this is the next big story. So the, these hearings took place in, in New York. So as our international listeners will know, uh, re- regulation in the U.S. happens on a state level. And so these hearings took place just 24 hours after the Trump arrest. So the, 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 the news was kind of overshadowed by, by the arrests 
And it's a two day. It was a two day event that included many well known people in the Bitcoin world. So there were different panels. Okay, so um, over the two day event, you had investor panels where that included some people from the investment community, um, regulatory panels, and also kind of consumer protections panels. Okay, and also an academic views panel. So a wide range of topics were covered over the two days. We're going to focus on the investor panel because I think this is where uh, it ties in mostly. It ties in a lot with regulation and how innovation is going to be able to, well, happen or not based on regulation that, that occurs. So the investor panel that we're going to focus on was on the first day. Uh, and that panel included so Jeremy Liu, which is, who is a partner at Lightspeed Ventures, Barry Silbert, who is the co-founder, uh, sorry, the founder and CEO of Second Market, Fred Wilson, who's a partner at Union Square Ventures, and the Winklevoss twins, founders of Winklevoss Capital Management. So, and, and we're one of the investors, the main investors of Bill Instant, of course, Charles yeah. Schramm's company. So that's where it ties in with the Schramm story. So what is BitLicense? So the idea is to create sort of a specific regulatory permission for Bitcoin businesses to exist. Uh, what we wouldn't want would be for Bitcoin to fall into existing regulatory frameworks because those frameworks were, were created many, many years ago for fiat money and not this virtual currencies so don't really apply. Um, and what they would really like, what investors would like, would be to replace the current money transmitter requirements. So one of the very difficult things for U.S. companies to have to deal with is getting money transmitter licenses in every one of the 50 states in the U.S. And this can be very, very long, costly, and complicated. So the goal here is to help New York's financial regulators develop a regulatory framework within 2014. So I just want to point out some of the more interesting things that were said. So it's, it's important to point out that countries are currently trying to figure out how to regulate Bitcoin and that it's a global phenomenon. So regulators need to recognize that Bitcoin is a global phenomenon. It's not confined to a state uh, or to a country. It's happening worldwide. And that needs to be taken to, into account into regulation. Another interesting point is that uh, dominant exchanges are overseas. And this is mainly a result of unclear regulation in the U.S., and the risk of, of, of starting exchanges in the U.S. is high. So investors wanted to make this right and enable exchanges to be started in the U.S. and particularly in New York. Uh, now, this is where I, I, I really sided with Fred Wilson, where what he says is what's needed is for regulation to take into account the small size of Bitcoin startups. Bitcoin startups are usually two, three, four people. Uh, you've got a CEO, CTO, um, maybe a few developers. And it's very difficult for these small companies to become compliant. So there needs to be a more gradual, according to Fred Wilson, there needs to be a more gradual process of getting compliant. So he says we need to have sort of an on-ramp to regulation and where companies would sit, simply have to let the state know that they're operating. And then this would kind of give them a time period to move through the regulatory framework. And another interesting thing that he pointed out is it would be interesting to have regulatory compliance being implemented into code rather than labor, you know, having lawyers have to um, submit forms or what have you. Um, 
And the more that we can take regulatory compliance and kind of have it be put into code, and so this code is certified and verified as being compliant, the better off entrepreneurs will be because it takes that burden off of their shoulders. And basically kind of just, it's, it's, um, you're compliant by default because you're implementing this code. Yeah, I think one interesting thing, if you look at this whole regulation debate, well, there's a few interesting things, right? But the question of, you know, do we need specific Bitcoin regulation? The opinions are actually kind of divided on that, right? Because I think the official, the Bitcoin Foundation's lawyer, uh, they felt that, no, we don't need specific Bitcoin regulations. And uh, whereas many there said, yes, we it would be a good thing. Of course, it completely depends on how would that be like, what would that regulation look like. And I think uh, Charlie Lee, so the founder of Litecoin, and um, he's he works for Coinbase now. He said a very interesting and I think important thing, which is if you start having this bit license thing, the real question is, does it replace the existing uh, money transmitter requirement, or is it just another thing on top of it? Because if it's just another thing on top of it, then that's not progress. That actually makes it worse. Right. So I think that's, you know, that's a really important question is if you, if you talk about Bitcoin regulations. Now, of course, it would be a desirable thing if that was like very Bitcoin friendly regulation. If they said, okay, all this existing financial regulations doesn't apply to Bitcoin businesses. Um, so instead you have these really tailored uh, friendly rules but to be quite honest, I don't know how likely that is. It seems more likely to me that what we will see, at least in the near term, is that the existing financial, uh, the existing rules apply, and then there's going to be more rules on top of that, specific for you know Bitcoin and virtual currency businesses. Because I mean, after all, if they're going to say no, the existing uh, you know money transmit rules, etc., don't apply to. Uh, you know, virtual currency businesses, that's going to be a very hard thing to sell if you look at the kind of lobby and influence that the financial industry has. Perhaps so, perhaps some of, some of the compliance regulation, uh, the existing regulation would still, would still be applied, but some components of that would be reviewed or replaced by some of this bit license. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it would it, certainly some of the people have the hope that it would be a replacement for a money transmitter license, and so it would make it cheaper. But I don't know if it's going to happen, but it would be it would certainly be a desirable outcome of all of that. I just want to point out one of the uh, interesting quotes uh, from Benjamin Lasky, and he's the superintendent of financial services for New York. And what he says is, if the choice is between squelching money laundering and allowing innovation, we're always going to choose squelching the money laundering. It's not worth it's not worth it to society to allow money laundering to exist and to allow a hundred flowers to bloom for innovation. So, <laughs> you wrote here in the in the rundown that this drives you insane. <laughs> that's a retarded way of thinking. I yes. agree because if that's the case, we'll never have innovation. And I just I, I spoke about this before, and this is sort of the what we've been seeing here in France is that we always sort of tend towards um, squelching innovation and yeah, protecting just, existing uh, incumbents. Yeah, yeah, in, in right. existing incumbents or, or businesses. 
um, and protecting yeah, consumers. I just felt this was like mind blowingly stupid. So yeah, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. So, you know, I mean, if you just think about this, so if there's any danger of some kind of money laundering going on, hence we cannot, you know, tolerate this as all, of course, if, if this is the approach to new things and innovation, then we wouldn't have the internet today. You know, we would still, I don't know, use the telegraph and, <laughs> you know, there would be no cars. And it's just so mind-blowingly stupid. And it, I have to say, it. I think this is a problem in the U.S. especially. So if you, look, if you think of 9-11 and all the things that have happened since then, and, you know, if, if you look at the Snowden and, and the things we've seen with the NSA, I think this is largely due to exactly this way of thinking. You say, like, you know, we cannot allow any terrorism to happen, any threat of terrorism. Hence, we have to go to these extreme measures to, like, prevent this. And then, of course, this leads to this erosion of, uh, of liberty. And I think this is a very similar approach here. It's like, no, there can be no money laundering. Hence, we must, anything that could be used potentially for money laundering, we must squash it. So, yeah, I, it's a... Yeah, this is exactly, really no, this is exactly what Fred Wilson said in one, of the, in, in one of the hearings. He said, it's about freedom, ultimately, and whether or not you want to live in a society that embraces innovation, free speech, and freedom or not. So you're either free to innovate and do new things and, and have... Uh, and have your liberties or you're going to be living in society that's going to be close to those things and trying to protect an existing institution and, and, and protecting citizens from the impending risks of a, of a terrorist uh, attack. Um, I think it's interesting to point out the difference, the different views and the different positions between U.S. regulators and European regulators. And although European regulators are very keen on this money laundering, terrorism kind of aspects of Bitcoin, their position at least what I've seen here in France and other European countries is mostly based on taxation. You know, they want to control it because they want to tax it. They, they don't want it to become this sort of thing that, that, that falls outside of um, the framework of uh, uh, European currency and the euro, whereas the U.S. is very much focused on money laundering, terrorist activity, you know, stopping criminals. Uh, and of course, you know, Asia being much more focused on state control of the money supply. So yeah, what, well, do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, so one thing I would like to add here, I mean, I, I think I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in Europe, there's definitely a bit less of a worry about this money laundering thing. So yeah, I think I agree. But I think one important thing to add here is a very interesting paradox is that if you listen to people like Jeremy Allaire of Circle and, and some of the people from the established Bitcoin businesses or more established, let's put it that way, um, they're actually quite, you know, they're like, we want regulation. This is a thing. It should happen. Now, I think the interesting thing here is that there's actually a, a kind of divergence in interests. So for these companies that have a ton of money to throw at lawyers and can put up a million dollars to get the money transmitter license in every state, etc., uh, and they actually have an interest if it's harder for new startups to do the same thing, you know, because it, it creates a huge barrier to entry and it makes their position much more defensible. So, I mean, I think, 
I think I remember Western Union mentioned that somewhere is that one of their uh, as you know, for them, difficult financial regulations is a good thing because they have all the money and they are all set up to comply with these regulations. But for new new people or new companies to enter the space, you know, they don't have that same advantage. So yeah. it makes it much more hard, much harder to start new companies. So that barrier to enter is so high. Yeah, so I think there's actually diversions here, like that for a company like Circle that raised like ten million dollars or something. Uh, they're not, they're not going to be so negative about complicated regulations because they can probably handle it. But for new new startups and for Bitcoin as a whole, it's a bad thing, and we would, we don't want that. It was also said like I, I like this analogy. It, they, somebody compared this to the the music industry. And how the music industry has been sort of in the same uh, regulatory framework problem where, you know, you have these very small companies come in and try to want to rec- they, want, they want to revolutionize the way people consume music. And then as soon as they um, approach uh, record labels to to get rights, well, they're slapped with a lawsuit. So sometimes you need to have test as a small company, you need to test your business model before being asked for permission to operate. And this is where the the regulatory on ramp scenario would be interesting. Where you know you you can you can test your business model. I mean, we we live in a we live in a an entrepreneurial um, environment where you know, where where companies are implementing sort of lean models where they they try and 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 iterate and see if things work. And who knows? Maybe maybe you you start a company and and six months down the road you figure out that this isn't the route you should have taken. You, you, you want to change your company's business model. Well, you spent all that money or you know, all that effort trying to get regulated for that first business model. And then you change it halfway down the road and you realize that, well, all that effort was for nothing. Yeah, no, it's a big problem. And, and of course, for innovation, we would want something like what Fred Wilson proposed, which is that Bitcoin businesses don't really have to worry about regulation so much in the first year and then afterwards if it if it becomes bigger if it scales etc then they can you know get compliance and and do all those things uh, i don't know if that's likely that we'll see something like that but of course for innovation that would be a great thing yeah so there's uh, mm-hmm. if 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 you want to listen to part of that uh that hearing we've been speaking about um, you can listen to episode 70 i think it's 78 of mm-hmm. let's talk bitcoin and there's a 20 minute segment there where um, where you can hear these people speak about uh, about regulation, and there's been loads so, loads of articles written about it too. So there's also been some news in regarding French regulation. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so so we've heard some things out of France. Okay. So in December, early December, uh, the French central bank issued a statement warning businesses and consumers about Bitcoin. Okay, so we had this first statement, which was sort of negative. And then a few weeks ago, and we spoke about this, I think two episodes ago, uh, there was a Senate hearing, which was quite positive. That included members of the industry and also politicians and uh, anti-money laundering authorities. And so that that, uh, hearing was quite positive. Now, the statement that was issued is issued by an arm of the French Central Bank, which is the French Prudential Supervisory Authority. And they issued a one-page statement. It's very short, and they where they clarify the status of Bitcoin exchanges in France. So they start off by pointing out some of the 
number of criminal events, such as you know, the Shrem case, and they, 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 they like to point out notably in the U.S., and they also go ahead and, you know, uh, reiterate the risk of fraud and money laundering and financing terrorism and stuff like that. And they, they reference the Focus article from December. And so this is their position. Their position is that anybody who intermediate, any intermediaries who facilitate the purchase or sale of Bitcoin must have a payment service license. Okay, so this is the first thing they say. And then they go on to say that the purchase or sale of Bitcoin, so in that case, the purchase or sale of Bitcoin may be conducted only through payment service providers, so credit companies, payment providers, or virtual currency providers. And here's the list of these companies, because those companies are listed openly on the website. So this they, is where it Just briefly, what's yeah. a virtual currency provider? That is that something like Bitcoin specific? I'm not sure. I don't think it's Bitcoin specific. I think it's very broad. Okay. Uh, I, I just read about the story about an hour beforehand, so I, 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 uh, I read about it very quickly. Um, but I'll need to go in a bit more detail about what these service providers actually are. So here's what frustrates me about this article. For one, okay, so they don't mention mining, whatever. They don't mention the sale of, uh, of and, and purchase of goods and services. So they don't say if Bitcoin should be used or not as, as a currency to buy goods and services. Maybe it's not for them to say that. Um, but they don't, they don't really give any recommendations they, they, they just say, okay, so if you're facilitating the purchase or sale of Bitcoins, you need to have the service license and here are the people that currently can do it. But if you're a new startup, uh, if you're an, ex if you're an exchange, a Bitcoin exchange, it doesn't give you any indication as to how these types of businesses should operate. It's so just a brief question, how many companies does that include this list of... Quite a, quite a few. Like if you go on their website, um, we'll post that link in the show notes, but it's in French. Yeah. Uh, there's a list of types of establishments. So you'll have like credit establishments, uh, financial yes. companies, uh, payment service providers, and then you basically have an Excel sheet with all of the... All the names of yeah, those companies. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, it's actually a lot of companies. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few companies, you know, big and big and small. But what what I don't like about this is that they they basically just kind of say, okay, this is this is your problem now. So if you're buying or selling Bitcoin, you've got to be one of these companies, and it, it doesn't give any recommendations as to how a company should or could be compliant. It doesn't address the specificality of Bitcoin, where these companies that they speak of are most likely companies that deal in euros or fiat currency. So it doesn't address Bitcoin specifically. So it's it's just useless. It's it's just one of those one of those things that alleviates them from the responsibility and you know, this is how it is and now you figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> and, well that's usually how it goes. No, you have to hire a lawyer and, and the lawyer figures out. Yeah, but this is, this uh, is also how, very typical this is also very typical of, of French authorities. This is the way I perceive yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the thing, my thoughts here would be, is of course that this is kind of a bottleneck. No? Now any mm -hmm. Bitcoin exchange or any Bitcoin business that does the euro to Bitcoin, you know, is at this kind of position where it goes back and forth, has to, you know, go through one of these companies. And of course, the consequence of that is that this costs money, this is slow, you have to probably hire a lawyer to look into exactly how to do it, and you have to write these documents probably up, etc. So this just makes it more expensive and it makes it slower to start uh, Bitcoin businesses. I have to say though, it's the same thing here in Germany. You know, they, uh, if you do a lot of 
a lot of Bitcoin things and uh, exchange included. That's a financial, it's providing a financial service. So you do need to have a certain, you know, license for that. And most, most startups wouldn't want to get that license themselves because it's, it's difficult, it's expensive. So they have to go to, uh, through a company that has one and basically enter some kind of partnership agreement, which is really the same thing as here, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I'll get to speak to some people at my meetup this week. We'll be able to uh, tell me a bit more about how this actually works. Uh, I'm thinking also of contacting the CEO of um, Paymium. Yeah. And seeing um, what his thoughts are on this. So anyway. Yeah, so actually we have a kind of related to regulation again. I guess this is a topic that just keeps coming up and up again. And will uh, keep coming Ch- up probably for the next, for a very long time. Yeah, so in China... Of course, this is a story we've covered a number of times. And essentially, the, the Chinese central bank said that payment processors, so this is kind of going back to a story maybe six weeks ago or something, that uh, payment processors are not allowed to deal with Bitcoin. And originally, they gave a deadline of a January 31st, which is the Chinese uh, New Year, that at that time they would have to shut down basically their business with Bitcoin exchanges. Now, what happened when they made that statement is instead everyone suspended their business with Bitcoin exchanges immediately. So they were like, okay, they don't want it. So we're not going to wait until the deadline. We're just going to stop right now. Um, And that, of course, caused that kind of crash in December where Bitcoin lost 30% or something of its value. And the interesting thing is that the Bitcoin exchanges in China have kind of kept existing, even though the volume's gone down dramatically, uh, they're still there and they've some have found some kind of way around. So for example, they would accept deposits. So you could do wire transfers directly to the person's, to the CEO's uh, personal bank account and and or to the bank's business account. And uh, so basically this deadline is passed now and the exchanges are still functional. Uh, BTC China is accepting bank deposits again as well. Uh, for a while, it was only another exchange that was accepting it. And now, you know, they're open to it too. So it's, it's interesting, I guess, you know, kind of the, the thing we can take from that is that Bitcoin is not there in China. It, it keeps existing in some weird limbo where it's not clear. Is it legal? Is it not? Is it tolerated? Is it going to continue? So I, I guess we will see in the next months what the, the position is of the Chinese government, if they're okay with this or if they're at some point going to step up and say, uh, no, this is not what we wanted and you really do have to shut down. I like how you characterize it as being in a limbo because that's exactly the, the way that I see it where we, we don't really know if it's okay or not. And I, I think that's partly because of the fact that it's it's a completely different culture and also language. So a lot of it gets lost in translation, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think the exchanges, from what I understand, they don't know if it's okay themselves. So they're just, you know, going ahead because otherwise they can shut down the business. They don't want to do that. So now they do these, you know, kind of circumventing the rules and hope that they get away with it. And so far they have. Well, yeah, we'll see if that continues. Yeah. I'm hoping we get to talk to Bobby Lee about this. 
Yeah, sure. We should ask him at the conference. Yeah. All right. So on to maybe a funner topic. <laughs> uh, we just want to briefly talk about Dogecoin. So there's been a couple of Dogecoin stories this, uh, in the last few weeks. So uh, mostly related to the Olympics. So the Jamaican bobsled team raised $33,000. Is it Dogecoin or Dogecoin? I don't yeah, know. I was... Uh, or Dogecoin. I'm not sure. I think there's several ways of pronouncing it. And I'm not exactly sure which one's the most established. I mean, I think originally, right, it's just a misspelling of dog. So, so originally, it's um, it's part of a sketch from a very old video. Uh, what are they called? It, it was a YouTube uh, channel, and they had these little sketches with puppets. And one of the puppets comes to another one and calls him a dog. Uh, rather than a dog, I don't know. I, I I watched it a few months back. I forget what the name of the channel is. Yeah. And then they kind of rebranded or <laughs> made it into the little, the meme with the, the the Shiba dog. So anyway, so the the Jamaican bobsled team uh, raised thirty three thousand dollars in, in dog coins, and uh, and the uh, Indian there's three Indian Olympians. I think they're skiers. Yeah, I think right. the different uh, different disciplines. I yeah, think. and they raised like seven thousand dollars in in Dogecoin. So this brings us to, I guess, um, wonder where Dogecoin is is going. I mean, um, they've seem to have a very vibrant community on Reddit with like fifty thousand people. Uh, it's extremely popular for tipping. We're actually considering uh, accepting Dogecoin tips, so we might put, uh, we might put a widget up on our on our tip page and it's like you know, the first kind of successful internet meme uh, based currency uh, apart from the coin yay coin that we obviously know this well, that, that didn't really go anywhere yeah, right? it didn't really but, go anywhere but it's the first successful one so what's interesting about this is basically it was a joke at first and it's built this community uh, and I, I seem to remember when when Dogecoin first came out um there were quite a few articles and you know people were saying like this is the next big thing and i was thinking to myself like how is this possible like how is this going to survive more than a week and you know with time and it started gaining traction and people started using it and trading and tipping with it and so i, I bought a few and well they went up and last time i didn't buy very much but but it, it you know the, the price has certainly gone up and market capitalization now is like 60 million dollars i think yeah, I think the the remarkable thing is, you know, the market capitalization $60 million is like number five or six or something in yeah. the list. You know, it's still it's still very small and it's like a tenth of Litecoin. However, what's really remarkable is the transaction volume, which is just really high with Dogecoin. So um, there's, in the last 24 hours, I was checking that before, there was 122,000 transactions, Dogecoin transactions. That's like more than double the number of Bitcoin transactions. This is remarkable. And, and of course, if you look at the transaction value, so, you know, Bitcoin is much higher transaction values in terms of dollars. So uh, Bitcoin transactions amounted to $350 million in the last 24 hours. But Dogecoin transaction was $111 million equivalent. And that's, that's in, insane. If you think at the market capitalization of $60 million, that means... On average, each Dogecoin is transacted twice in the last day. 
that's just uh, really remarkable, quite stunning. I'm wondering if it really is tips that is such a huge factor that just people tip each other back and forth at this innate, insane rate. So yeah, what do you think it's, it's uh, being? You think it's being used mostly for tipping? Like, does anybody I, I accept this? Like, do merchants accept it? I don't, I, there's a few. So I looked into this. So there's a few that are starting to. There's a bunch of websites. There's there's uh, in Jamaica. There's some resort where you can rent these like luxury villas with doke coin and uh so but, but of course it's absolutely minor there's very very few things you can buy with doke coins so i i guess tipping is one of the main uses donations definitely possible uh, very popular in this uh, community uh, but yeah i don't know it's very interesting uh, maybe one thing we can mention with tipping so uh, one place where tipping is very popular is on Reddit. So Reddit is this kind of message board form thing, you know, where you can post news articles or you can uh, write comments and people can discuss it. So what people can do on Reddit, someone built this uh, Bitcoin tip bot. So you can associate a Bitcoin address with a, a Reddit username. And if you like what someone says on Reddit, you can give them some Bitcoin. Uh, this has become very popular. And now people have done the same thing for other currencies. Among them, they've done it for a Doge, a Doge coin. And uh, this is very, very popular. Uh, and of course, the, the cool thing, if you think of it in the context of tipping, is if you can tip someone like a thousand doke coin and that's like one dollar forty. But if you did the equivalent in Bitcoin, it would be like zero point zero zero one seven Bitcoin. And that you know doesn't sound as great. You know, it sounds like nothing to us. Even though it's the same dollar amount. Yeah. So I think that's also one of the reasons why this is so successful for tipping. And because it's kind of, you know, if you think of it this kind of a fun thing that's not a serious thing, but just, you know, like something nice, then it gives a sort of a monopoly money aspect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And especially that it's also this, you know, cute dog, like here's a thousand of those. It, it makes sense. I think for, for tips really. Yeah. I was, my, I, I was mining it for a little while on, on just my home computer here and I had mined quite a few, but <laughs> right before I got to the, uh, the withdrawal limit for that, for that pool, the pool ended up being a scam, and the guy took off with the with the token. Uh, that's 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 horrible. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I wasn't worth very much then. It's probably not worth very much now, anyway. But uh, I was just disappointed that I had spent all that time mining on my MacBook and finally got to a decent amount of Doge coins. And of course, you know, I had I had bought like twenty times as much just with a few yeah a few millibit coins. So. So I guess the questions are here: Does it have a future? What 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 are the what can be the uses of Dogecoin in the future? So we've mentioned tipping. Um, maybe maybe Dogecoin would be used for microtransactions on sort of uh, internet meme sites, uh, or maybe like I'm thinking sites like um, uh, Funny or Die, for example. Like say say. They would have paid content. Yeah, you could pay yeah. it with Doge coins, you know, things like that. Sort of um, comedy, nope. meme related, you know, internet comedy stuff. You could pay with Doge coin. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there is this vibrant community there, so I don't think it's going away. You know, these people are not just going to lose interest in it. They're like really fanatical about uh, coin. So, and it's cool. It's like fun. And they seem to be really cool in that they're like, you know, very excited about supporting things. And uh, I think it's, it's partially is that they just like supporting things. Partially is also they love seeing like Dogecoin in the media and uh, yeah. So I think it's going to stay. And of course, the big advantage with all these cryptocurrencies is that it's so easy to go from one to the other. You know, you have this big contrast where it's it's very difficult to take like US dollar and go to Bitcoin or some currency, go to Bitcoin. But then once you have Bitcoin, go to Dogecoin, etc. It's the easiest thing ever. So you can make that really frictionless. So I wasn't it, at first. It's, it's gotten easier now for Dogecoin. But uh, when I first wanted to buy them, uh, there was one exchange that was selling them, but uh, it wasn't very simple to. Yeah. But now there's a few others that are accepting it, so it's definitely gotten easier. I, yeah, I guess. I mean, what I mean is also in the medium term, mm-hmm. because the trading, you know, you don't have to worry about all these regulatory things because you can really just do uh, locate an exchange anywhere, and nobody can stop them because you don't have this fiat bottleneck issue. So I think in the future, you can even have a bit pay and payment processes. They can just accept any altcoin and it would be very easy for them to do that. And you can have exchanges that do like uh, trading and you, perhaps you can even integrate it in the wallet. So if somebody pays you in Dogecoin and you don't want Dogecoin, it would be automatically traded for Bitcoin or something. So at least I think it's very easy to do all of these things. And uh, people will do them, I think. And, and that makes it very easy, I think, for any of these altcoins to have some actual practical value. So maybe we talk about our last topic. Yeah, so uh, just a very brief update because we've talked about it a few times. Uh, is the Ethereum project. So Ethereum, as we've mentioned, this is new currency, new protocol that's very ambitious and wants to do be kind of the next step in the evolution of Bitcoin and of cryptocurrencies and take the innovation, the technological innovation that Bitcoin achieved and apply it to a lot of new and exciting areas that it's not being done right now. Now, as last week we talked about it and we mentioned that on February 1st, so two days ago uh, or yesterday, the fundraiser was starting and that's been postponed. So that's not happening yet. Uh, it's not clear when it's going to happen, but they're going to announce it on the website, which is ethereum.org. Um, they did, however, launch a test net uh, so you can try it out. I, I, I plan to play around with that next week um, and, you know, kind of test, see how it works. Um, but yeah, the, the fundraiser has been postponed. If you're interested in it, there's a talk they, they made kind of an, an official announcement at the conference in Miami last weekend and Vitalik Buterin gave a talk there. And if you look on YouTube for Ethereum Miami, you can watch it. I haven't seen it yet. It just came out yesterday. So I'll, I'll also be watching that and. You know, we can kind of update more when there's some uh, developments on Ethereum. Okay, so let's uh, talk about, you know, our new segment, which is new Bitcoin acceptances. There's a few this week. 
So apparently yeah. uh, Lamborghini and McLaren dealerships in the U.S. are going to start accepting Bitcoin. I think it's been kind of a trend where car companies are starting to accept Bitcoin because, well, we've got all these new Bitcoin millionaires. They're going to want to be buying expensive cars. We better get in on this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess that makes sense for them. Um, and there's an online casino. Yeah, there's Vera a casino. Vera John Casino. Yeah. So I think they're in Malta, uh, supposedly one of the largest online casinos. They have like 100 employees and they're accepting Bitcoin. They, what's maybe important to notice here is that there's a difference. You know, there are all these Bitcoin gambling sites that they're actually using Bitcoin in the gambling and they're integrating it. And somehow maybe they even use the blockchain for gambling. Uh, Verijon is different. They just accept it, you know, kind of like BitPay, although they're using a different one. Uh, so, they, you know, they're receiving Bitcoin payments. They uh, convert it into euros. You know, they sell the Bitcoins. But you can, uh, yeah, you can deposit money in the casino with Bitcoin now. And then there's the Chicago Sun-Times that are experimenting with Bitcoin. So they're doing a, uh, a test where um, readers will be able to, will be able to uh, go through the paywall with Bitcoin. Yeah, that's very exciting, I think. Because yeah. that is truly innovative. And uh, micropayments is uh, microtransactions, something that, you know, is such a topic in Bitcoin, it keeps coming back and, and that possibility of Bitcoin enabling microtransactions is something a lot of people are really interested in, but we haven't seen any of it yet. So I think this is one of the first real live experiments of using micro, Bitcoin microtransactions. Yeah, there's a, there's lots to be done in this, especially for especially in the press where the paywall is just such a hassle. If you could, uh, I don't know who spoke about this, but I think it was in one of the last Let's Talk Bitcoin episodes, if you could just send money to an address and and have have um, the cost of reading the article just deducted every time you you visit a page where you don't have to log in or you don't have to do anything. That would be so much more, so much better, and 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 a way for the for the press to maybe make some money again because they've been having such a hard time. Um, there's a company in Switzerland that you uh, that we both know well called. Um, Venamco? Well, the company is called Venamco, yeah. yeah and yeah. then, yeah. No, you were saying? Yeah, so the company is called Venamco. It's actually a company of my cousin. Uh, so he founded it and owns it. And uh, they have, well, you actually, I was telling you about this kind of randomly and, and you knew the company and you knew their uh, product. But so one thing they do is called the device lab. So it's basically kind of a, a furniture thing where you can uh, put various mobile devices so you can test websites and applications on that. Yeah, I knew about this because I, I of course, work in an agency as a UX designer and we've been looking at this solution for uh, for our device testing and they also make some testing software. Um, and uh, I, I'd seen a few weeks ago that they were accepting Bitcoin and, and looking into purchasing some of this, this device stand that they make. And so I was just kind of uh, surprised to hear that it's actually your cousin. Small world, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I've yeah. been looking at their. I've been looking at the solution for quite a while because they released it. I mean, they they spoke about it uh, on their website like maybe six months before it was actually released, and they released it a few months ago. And we're we're just kind of waiting to a little while before we purchase one. So small world, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So yeah. If, so if you're in mobile development, uh, check that out. It's. Uh, you can just go Venamco, like V-A-N-A-M-C-O dot com. And then uh, the device is Device Lab. 
I think they're not accepting Bitcoin for the the software subscription yet, but you know, hopefully they'll. It's probably because it's hard to build subscriptions with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Soon, but uh, I presume uh, hopefully they will do so in the future. Then uh, in Germany, there's a company called Parfumerie.de. So it's like an online perfume uh, merchant. I think it's quite a large company. So the cosmetics and things like that, uh, they're also accepting Bitcoin now, which is cool. I'm, um, I find it interesting how, so companies that accept Bitcoin, they'll put the price in Euro, but maybe it's not the case everywhere, but they don't put the price in Bitcoin. It'd be nice if you could switch, if you could click on the, kind of like on um, blockchain.info, if you could click and you could see the price in Bitcoin at the same time. Yeah, I... Maybe that'll come. I don't know. I mean, it'll probably come at some point, but I think for the time being, people don't really have this reference idea, you know, how Mm. much is, how much should that cost in Bitcoin? You know, it's hard to compare things. And, and in the end, these companies use Bitcoin as a, really as a payment system. So for payment acceptance. So I think it makes sense to price things in euros and you can pay in Bitcoin because, you know, they're receiving euros, it's priced in euros. So... But of course, in the future, I think if Bitcoin becomes more stable and Bitcoin is like really established and international and especially in countries where perhaps your own currency is very volatile, it would make sense to price things in Bitcoin even. And then there's uh, some more Canadian companies accepting Bitcoin. So we've seen a lot of acceptance in in Canada. Uh, there's this article uh, this week on... Uh, I can't remember what publication, but saying that there was a hundred and... 43 companies now accepting Bitcoin in Canada. Uh, and so a restaurant in Montreal called the Montreal Poutine. So Poutine is, of course, this very typical Canadian dish, uh, which is made up of three ingredients. That's French fries, gravy, and cheese. And uh, so they accept Bitcoin now. Uh, if you want to buy a Poutine, you can pay your Poutine with Bitcoin. Poutine, yeah, was, uh, poutine was the base of my... Uh, of my nutrition when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems uh, Canada is really leading in a lot of ways with Bitcoin. There's so much going on there. Yeah. Kind of sad that I'm not there to see it happen. <laughs> yeah. But I've got some friends okay. there. I should probably talk to them about it and see what they think. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that was it for, for this week, no? Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to our fifth episode. Yeah, so thanks so much. And we look forward to being back next week before our sixth episode. Uh, if you have any questions, then please email them to us at epicenterbitcoin at gmail.com. And, you know, we can cover them on the show. Also, if you're interested, you can go to our blog, uh, epicenterbitcoin.com. Uh, there's some posts on Ethereum now. I don't know if, I don't think we mentioned it last week because we weren't live yet. So I wrote a post on that. There's also a, a resources post. So it has links to all the important things on uh, about Ethereum. Yeah, I really, I really like um, that. Yeah, so yeah, if you're interested, it's kind of a good place to go. You know, if it's a topic interests you and you can see the you links know, to forum, the white paper, etc. Um, and of course, there's a Epicenter Bitcoin newsletter. So if you go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter with... Uh, analysis of the latest development and what's been going on so yeah it's been 
Yeah, that's been growing quite a lot too. There was like 20 people added in the last week, so that's great. And yeah, we'll hope to see you next week. Yeah, also um, follow us on Twitter. So we're at Epicenter BTC. And please, please, please give us feedback. We haven't heard from anybody. We've heard from no one. We have all these listeners. No, we've heard from some. Yeah. <laughs> what? Well, the Joe is Oh, yeah. So, yeah. But, but we haven't heard from very many listeners. Uh, so. Uh, please give us feedback you know, let us know how we can improve let us know we, we really want to make this uh, kind of a community driven success so if, if, if you have tips for us or even just feedback or send it our way because we, we want to know how we can improve our, our content and we're going to be posting more, more content within the next few weeks because we're going to be at the uh, Berlin conference and, uh, and hopefully doing some interviews there so we'll have some uh, interview content that will be posted in addition to the regular weekly episodes so again thank you for listening and we'll be back next week yeah thanks for listening and see you soon